You're listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We will be joined by cancer experts to discuss blood cancer diagnosis, treatment, side effects management, and the importance of clinical trials. They will share their experience in treating patients and discuss strategies for optimal patient care. Let's get the conversation started. Welcome to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. I'm Dr. Ken Miller. I'm a medical oncologist and an LLS volunteer. And I want to thank all of you so much for joining us on this episode. Where we'll be discussing myelofibrosis, including staging and diagnosis, emerging therapies, common signs and symptoms, strategies to reduce complications, and also how COVID-19 has impacted treatment for patients with myelofibrosis. I just want to take a moment to comment that I personally have been very excited about doing this interview and learning more. I will speak as a general medical oncologist and hematologist that myelofibrosis for me has been one of the disorders that I've least understood. And I think that's a common issue for generalists like myself. So with that in mind, today we're going to be joined by Dr. Serge Virstovic, who is a professor of medicine and director of the Hans A. Pelens Clinical Research Center for Myeloproliferative Neoplasms, Department of Leukemia at the MD Anderson Cancer Center in Texas. Serge, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Ken. It's a privilege and honor to join you today for a lovely discussion on the topic of myelofibrosis. So, you know what I would love if you would, is to give us an overview of, and it's such a general question, but tell us about myelofibrosis. What is it as it would be defined and explained this year, 2022? Well, myelofibrosis is one of the so-called myeloproliferative neoplasms, or MPN. And you remember that there are two types of chronic conditions of the bone marrow. One is myelodysplastic syndromes, where cells are out of shape, unable to mature, People have anemia, thrombocytopenia. This is the problem. They have a shorter life expectancy than otherwise and higher risk of progression to ML. The other is myeloproliferative neoplasms, myeloid bone marrow cells proliferative, growing without control, neoplasms, not normal. And typically you will think about essential thrombocytemia, polycythemia vera, too many platelets, too many red blood cells, too many white cells. But here we have myelofibrosis as well. Cells grow without control, and there are some patients that are earlier in the stage of this myelofibrosis disease where there are too many platelets or too many vitals. But by and large, what happens in this condition, there is development of fibers, a scar tissue in the bone marrow. Most of the time we see this as a reaction to the presence of malignant growth of the cells. And that fibrosis in the bone marrow would limit the growth of the cells. So patients present most of the time with fibrotic bone marrow leading to anemia, Many may have a low uh, platelets. There is a reactive enlargement of the spleen. Spleen becomes very large in about 80% of the patients. Liver enlarges in about 40% of the patients. And many, many patients have a very bad quality of life. Night sweating, low-grade fevers, itching, bone aches and pains, body wasting, fatigue and weakness, unable to walk, cachexia, and untimely death in fibrotic bone, myelofibrosis, that's about five to seven years on average. So let me ask you even further in terms of your understanding or what our broader understanding is of the biology. And what I was thinking, for example, this proliferation, is it because of gene mutations? Is it problems with the receptor for growth factors? Is it too much growth factor? Tell us more if you would. 
So all the myeloproliferative neoplasms that we call classic ones, and I mentioned ET, PV, and now MF, myelofibrosis, are driven with uniform underlying biological problem, which is hyperactivity of the JAK-STAT pathway. That's intercellular signaling pathway that is present in normal person. That has to do with blood making, but it's also involved in inflammation and immune system as well. Now, in the bone marrow, when we need to make blood through receptors uh, for erythropoietin or thrombopoietin or for white growth factor receptors, we would make that bone marrow to make some of those cells through activation of the JAK enzymes. And there are four in the family members uh, of that family. The key one is the JAK2, which is specifically involved with the making of red blood cells and also involved in large part with making of the platelets. So these JAKs would be enzymes. These are tyrosine kinases inside the cells attached to the receptors would be activated stat and that would lead to activation of the cell growth. So that JAK-STAT pathway is hyperactive because of the mutations. And you are right, there are mutations here that have a major role. We call them driver mutations. They drive that JAK-STAT pathway or highway, my patients say highway. And so you have a, in about 90% of the patients, typically mutually exclusive, three mutations, a JAK-V617F mutation, calreticulin mutation, or MIPL mutations. The most common and widely known is the JAK2 mutation, JAK2V617F, about 60% of the myelofibrosis, then about 25 calreticulin, about 10 MPL. MPL is the mutation in the receptor, actually, for the thrombopoietin for that growth factor for the platelets. They all activate the JAK set pathway, and you have 10% of myelofibrosis patients. None of these is present. This is still a little bit of an enigma and the target for research. What happens here is in myelofibrosis in particular, a significant contribution of other abnormalities. Because you can ask me a simple question. Okay, if patients with ET that has a high platelets and has a normal life expectancy, has the activation of JAKSAT pathway, and you have a myelofibrosis patient with a JAK mutation and a life expectancy five to seven years, why is that? So there is a contribution of other factors First of all, these driver mutations are not the only one responsible for the presence of the disease because there are normal, healthy people walking around with these mutations at a very low level. You know, 0.2% of 65 population people carry mutations without the disease. And if you have a disease, the outcome is so much different. And therefore, we know that there are other non-driver mutations that contribute to the aggression of the disease as well as abnormalities in chromosomes that carry genes that may be present in the myeloproliferative neoplasms. And of course, these two are commonly associated with the presence of driving mutations and lead to this aggressiveness. So a question that may be a little bit unrelated, but I have a feeling it is. Occasionally, a patient will present who has a JAK2 mutation, will present with thrombosis. Clinically, they don't have P-Vera. I mean, their H&H may be normal. And yet, obviously, there's some effect of having a JAK2 mutation. Talk about that a little bit, if you would. That group of patients with low levels of JAK2, or what issues do they have? And what's the difference between that patient and the ones we're talking about with clinical disease? That's a really good question. There is a spectrum, as you pointed out, of the patients that would have a JAK2 mutation. I already mentioned that there are people that don't have any disease whatsoever with the JAK2 mutation, and the other spectrum is malfibrosis. What you are saying is you have a patient with a clot, right? You have a patient with a clot, let's say portal vein thrombosis. 
one of the tests that is part of the spectrum of tests that is being used to define why that happened. This is a critical problem, right? People can die from portal vein thrombosis is the test for the JAK2 mutation because that is one of the prothrombotic factors. And as you pointed out, it is not absolutely necessary that that patient who has thrombosis and is found to have a JAK2 mutation has a bone marrow disease. There is a possibility, 50-50 chance, that if you do the bone marrow biopsy in that patient, you may find a smoldering, I would call, a little bit evidence of a disease, perhaps early myeloproliferative neoplasm unclassifiable or something that would suggest possibly PV is coming along or ET, early stage myelofibrosis, but it's not clinically relevant. Half of the patients have normal bone marrow, right? So what do you do? Well, you treat those patients one way or the other with proper medications, anticoagulation for a period of time. And if the JAK2 is positive with the clinical evidence of the disease in the bone marrow, that is usually forever because there is a disease in the bone marrow. It's not going to go away. And if there is any elevation of the platelets or red blood cells or white cells whatsoever, you would treat that patient as you would otherwise treat full-fledged PV patients with cytoreduction to lower those numbers to normal levels or low normal levels. So it is a kind of a earlier way of looking at the evolving MPN when people present with a thrombotic event found to have a mutation. You test mutations on the blood. It's same to the bone marrow, no difference. You follow that with the bone marrow test and you do or do not find the disease, which will give you a sense how to treat but anticoagulation number one, possibly cytoreduction therapy on top of it if necessary. With JAK2 mutations, what are the deciding factors that, that either has the patient branch off into PVIRA, into ET, or into myelofibrosis? One of the factors uh, is the allele burden. In other ways, the percent of the cells in the sample from the patient, bone marrow blood, the same way, that carry that mutation. So typically, patients with ET would have a very low allele burden. Percentages are somewhere between 5 and 15, maybe up to 20% of the cells affected by the disease. The second disease that you mentioned, PV, typically 45%, and myelofibrosis, typically 60 to 7%. So the tumor burden, if you like, is much greater with the more uh, aggressive disease. And, of course, do not forget what I mentioned before, presence of additional non-driver mutations, much, much more common in myelofibrosis, and presence of chromosomal abnormalities, which are bad, much, much more common in myelofibrosis. So these factors matter. So, for example, you have patients who lives with ET or PV for decades, as you would expect, but over time, the number of cells affected by the disease grows, right? It's a living tissue. So, if you would prospectively monitor this allele burden, you would see that there is a number of patients with a higher and higher percentage. It is now known that when this percentage goes above 75%, for example, for ET or PV patients, and remember, they start lower, these people with higher allele burden, I call it tumor burden, are at much higher risk of thrombosis, much higher risk of bleeding, much higher risk of having big spleen, which can be a sign of more aggressiveness in these conditions, and therefore much higher risk of progression to myelofibrosis, means spent phase of ET or PV, acquisition of fibers in the bone marrow, and shorter life expectancy. Remember, some patients with ET and PV do transform to myelofibrosis, and this allele burden is one of the significant factors, which may not have actually been much in use in every practice, but I think in the very near future, 
it's going to be there on a map to use it for prognostication. Very interesting. But what is the cell that is abnormal in myelofibrosis or cells? Okay, well, we usually focus in identifying the culprit on certain subpopulation of the cells. You would say cells that make platelets, cells that make white cells or red blood cells in a different stage of the differentiation in the bone marrow, uh, megakaryocytes. Novel evidence also says that monocytes from blood are a significant contributor to the biology of disease where monocytes give rise to megakaryocytes and macrophages that are in the bone marrow and are abnormal as well. Osteoblasts and osteoclasts, the cells that uh, form the bone itself, are out of order. They also derive themselves from the monocytes. So the biology of disease in terms of the cell types is evolving in our understanding what exactly is happening. But to simplify it, it is disease of all the types of the cells. It's not disease of the platelets, disease of the red blood cells, or disease of the white cells. It's disease of the bone marrow. And we can't really identify the diseased cells from the others with any easy way, with any specific markers. And that recognition of the complexity of the disease and just being presented with either high platelets or high red blood cells or with the fibers is what makes us distinct the types. But otherwise, you can even talk about spectrum of the diseases, right? Because they do evolve from one to the other in some patients. Some ET patients can transform to PV. And we already said ET and PV can transform to MF. And all three can transform to AML. So it's a spectrum, if you're Very interesting. Let me ask you a little bit more about, again, the biology, and then then we'll talk about the staging or progression of the disease. But in terms of biology, we talk about fibrosis. What is that fibrous material? You know, I would tend to call it scar tissue, but what is it? Scar tissue is a very easy way to understand it. Fibers, right? Where do they come from? And traditionally, what you still read in the textbooks, because they take time to change, we say that's reactive to presence of malignant clone. There are cytokines, the proteins that are released by malignant clone, and cytokines that are released by the stromal cells, those that support the growth of the hematopoietic cells in the bone marrow, would give rise to these fibers to develop like fibroblasts. The non-hematopoietic origin, they would be reactive, they are not part of the clone, but they obviously affect the function of the bone marrow, leading to anemia, thrombocytopenia, leading to reactive increase in the spleen, the liver and that body wasting and untimely death. They would be present in the spleen or the liver. If you take the spleen out, you may find the fibers there and you may actually find the bone marrow outside the bone in the spleen. That's all part of the disease process. It's complicated. New evidence over the last five or six years suggests these fibers may actually be part of the disease process itself. The monocytes that I mentioned which are certainly part of the disease process. They're affected by the mutations, for example. If you test monocytes with a specific PCR, you will find that. Give rise to fibrocytes. Fibrocytes are hematopoietic derived cells from the blood cells that appear to be significant contributor to the fibrosis in the bone marrow. So we may have a fibrocytes from the hematopoietic origin and a fibroblast from endothelial origin present in the bone marrow at the same time. It's not that simple anymore. In fact, new clinical studies are being done with the medications to interrupt that differentiation of monocytes to fibrocytes if they have a major role in fibrosis development to decrease the worsening of the bone marrow function, improve the anemia and thrombocytopenia, and have a clinical relevance as antifibrotic medication. So biology is uh, changing. It does not appear that 
fibrosis is absolutely necessary, just a reactive process. It seems to be part of the disease process as well. Let me ask you to tell us more about making the diagnosis and also about its stages or phases that are important for us to know about. The diagnosis would require absolutely necessary the bone marrow biopsy. You need to see abnormalities suggestive of myeloproliferative neoplasms in terms of the size, shape, and colors, basically, of different cells there. And uh, you would have, not absolutely necessary, though, uh, fibers present to make a diagnosis. You would combine that with the blood count, anemia, high white cell count, presence of, or absence of the blast, baby cells from the bone marrow that may be present there, high LDH that typically comes from the dead cells, and the splenomegaly. So you really need a clinician to come together in assessment of the bone marrow, chemistry, blood count, and physical exam to make a diagnosis of malofibrosis. It is not usually possible only to look at the bone marrow and say, this is malofibrosis. If you have a hematopathologist looking at the bone marrow not knowing what the blood cell count is or physical exam or chemistry, they would typically say suggestive of MPN with fibrosis. Well, fibrosis can be present in advanced PV. Even 20% of PV patients at the diagnosis have already higher gravity of uh, fibrosis. So fibrosis also may be present in CML or others. So it is really a team effort or a clinician that would be combining all this together. And it's not always easy. For example, I mentioned that there is no absolute need to have a fibers there. Since 2016, WHO classification of hematologic neoplasms identify what we now call prefibrotic myelofibrosis as an entity on its own. That's a new one made up in 2016, which was carved out of what typically we would call ET patients. What happened is the large number of ET patients, people with hyperlipids, were reanalyzed and recognition was made that about 20% of them actually have a worse outcome and have a different size, shape, and color of megacardiocytes in the bone marrow without fibrosis. So the typical survival of the ET patients, typically we would say 20 to 25 years because the typical patient is diagnosed in mid-60s, so that would be about normal. Prefibrotic malofibrosis is about 15 years, somewhat shorter than ET, but not as bad as fibrotic malofibrosis, and that would be 5 to 7. So the scale of a fibrosis is from 0 to 3. 0 and 1 would be prefibrotic, 2 and 3 would be fibrotic, and it has, uh, obviously, as you can see, influence on the overall outcome, and in some prognostic scoring system, the degree of fibrosis is an included prognostic factor. So we can, if you want, really, we can divide patients on the scale of how many fibers they have in bone marrow. But this is not the only factor that matters, so we typically don't do that. We would usually move from the, that what appears to be simple uh, way of tackling the issue of uh, grading. We would typically move to prognostic scoring systems, which I mentioned, fibrosis in some of their features. But otherwise, they do include the age, the blast, the white cell count, the symptoms, abnormalities in chromatomes. The prognostic scoring systems are the ones that would be dividing patients based on aggressiveness of the disease to early phase, intermediate phase, and advanced phase, or low risk for dying, intermediate risk for dying, and a high risk for dying. Well, that's the reality. We are talking about the survival assessment with prognostic scoring systems, and that's how we usually divide the patients.
I'm sure for the listeners and for myself as well, obviously one of the big questions is how do you treat it, both early stages and more advanced stages. And along those lines, why don't we talk first about approved therapies, and then let's leave time too to talk about uh, emerging therapies. Prognostic scoring systems are very useful to assess the risk of dying. And in addition, not just to semi-intelligently talk to the patient about what to expect, with some reservations, knowing that these prognostic scoring systems were devised on outcome patients 10 or 20 years. And now it's better, obviously, than what we do then 10 or 20 years ago. So the outcome might be better with today's therapies. But it's useful to know. And the other point is with the prognostic scoring systems that it is justifiable if the perceived prognosis is less than five years of survival, then you would send that patient to a bone marrow transplant. And these are typically intermediate and high-risk patients by these prognostic scoring systems. They should go to see a transplanter and see whether they can be cured with that procedure because you don't have medications that will be eliminating disease and curing people. The goals of therapy otherwise are to control the signs and symptoms. So once you are done with prognostication, you refer patient to transplant, see whether the transplant is possible, which unfortunately is possible usually up to 10%, no more. That's unfortunately the reality. People are older, no donor, comorbidities. They need to have some sickness or be sick from the disease to be a candidate. So it's kind of contradictory, right? You're sick, you're not candidate because you're too sick and so forth, but less than 10% of patients get to there. Then you ask the question, what do I do? Signs and symptoms of the disease. Three main characteristics that lead us to treat the patients to intervene. Otherwise, you can wait and watch observation, right? If if you have a di- patient with disease, there are no signs and symptoms that bother him or her, you can observe. What uh, leads us to treat is symptomatic splenomegaly, big spleen, general systemic symptoms with the uh, body wasting, with the uh, night sweating, low-grade fevers, itching, others, and uh, anemia. These are the three main reasons when you ask the doctor, why do I treat these come up? And there are medications that can help. So JAK inhibitors that inhibit the JAK stat pathway, they're not specific for the JAK2 mutation. They help any patient with the myelofibrosis with control of that JAK stat pathway, which would improve the symptoms, general systemic symptoms, and reduce the symptomatic splenomegaly and eliminate that problem as well. So two factors are covered by two approved JAK inhibitors, ruxolitinib and fedratinib, pretty effective in almost everybody to decrease the spleen and symptoms to some degree. Variability in the degree of improvement, but almost everybody, 95% of patients have some benefit. Unfortunately, they worsen the anemia. So anemia is one of the major problems in management. The anemia and thrombocytopenia, which also can happen, affect the utility of the currently available JAK inhibitors and alter how we manage the patients you have to balance between the how much you can give to control the spleen and symptoms versus how much of that dose that you choose will affect the red blood cells and platelets production. Because remember, the JAK-STAT pathway is important in general for making blood. So question about ruxolitinib and the other JAK-2 inhibitor. But, you know, years ago, obviously, we got very excited about Gleevec, that not only does it treat the disease hematologically, but people, in fact, were going into remission and some are cured. What's the thinking about why the JAK-2 inhibitors don't have as profound a benefit? It comes down to the biology of the problem. The mutation in the JAK enzyme is the in a part of the enzyme which we call pseudokinase. 
That's a part that controls the kinase part, the enzymatic part of the JAK2, and the V617F mutation would lead to conformational change of pseudokinase, allowing the kinase, the enzyme, to be active all the time. And it is not easy to develop a medication that would bind to this particular part of the enzyme, V617F spot, if you like. Most of the drugs uh, bind to where the ATP, the energy source for the enzyme binds. So you prevent the ATP binding, ATP binding inhibition, would then prevent the enzyme from binding. Knowing that, now you can recognize that uh, ruxolitinib or fedratinib or other JAK inhibitors, which are ATP binding site inhibitors, are not specific for the mutated protein because it has nothing to do with this ATP binding site. It's an other part, pseudokinase part. So that's why there is no differentiating factor between the effect on the normal JAK2 and abnormal JAK2. Maybe the abnormal JAK2 carrying cells, abnormal malignant cells, are a little bit more sensitive to it because they depend on the overacting JAK2 pathway all the time, but you cannot count on elimination of the JAK2 mutated cells. It's not specific. On the other hand, it works in people who have mutated calreticulin or mutated meeple. You don't really need to test for the genetic profile of the patients as long as you have a diagnosis of myelofibrosis. It doesn't really matter what the patient has genetically. It is not CML. It is not imatinib. I wish we have a drug that would be JAK2 mutation-specific or calreticulin mutation-specific or meeple mutation-specific. We don't. So in terms of emerging therapies, what are the things that you're excited about? Now, soon enough, we may have one or even maybe two other JAK inhibitors that are different. They still inhibit the JAK-STAT pathway, but may be a different either in toxicity profile or in other biological effects. One that may be coming any day now is called pacritinib. That one does not lower the blood cell count. It does not cause much of anemia and thrombocytopenia at all. It still controls the spleen and symptoms to a good degree, and it may be approved by the end of this month, hopefully it will, for patients that have very low platelets. I did not specify, but the ruxolitrim and fedratinib, as I mentioned, do lower the anemia, uh, red blood cells, and the platelets. They are not supposed to be given to patients that have platelets below 50. So this group of people is really in trouble. Not much you can do. So pacritinib might be approved for people with platelets below 50, possibly also useful in people who are all, already very anemic, and it has a good control of spleen and symptoms. The next uh, is momelotinib. Another JAK inhibitors, it can improve the spleen and symptoms, but it has additional biological effect on the iron metabolism. It inhibits the protein called ALK2, which is the receptor on the reticular endothelial system, liver in particular, that is tied to level of hepcidin. Hepcidin is iron metabolism controlling protein. The hepcidin through inhibition of ALK2 in the body of myelofibrosis patients goes down. It's very high. So lowering the hepcidin allows more iron to be available for erythropoiesis. You decrease this inflammatory iron deficiency, if you like, or inflammatory-related anemia, and that would improve the red blood cell count. So momelotinib appears from the studies to be able to control the anemia, improves the anemia in a number of patients, and control the symptoms, and to control the spleen to a good degree, and that would be particularly useful efficacy for the patients that are in the second-line setting after ruxolitinib or fedratinib, because the main reason, as I alluded before, uh, for failing or 
having a difficulty in managing patients with hydroxyhydrotinib is anemia and thrombocytopenia to some degree. So the second line, patients uh, are very anemic, not feeling well, and have a spleen. Momelotinib may have major role there. There are other drugs that are not JAK-STAT pathway inhibitors where you can enhance the production of red blood cells. Luspatercept is one in a phase 3 study for possible approval as the first ever anemia drug for a use in malofibrosis. It's being combined actually with the JAK inhibitors, which makes sense, right? Improve the anemia. Yeah, yeah. And the JAK inhibitors do the spleen and symptoms. And there are many other drugs that affect the other biological parameters that are being combined with JAK inhibitors or used in the second line in investigational setting. Serge, I want to focus for a couple of minutes on goals of therapy. So when you see a new patient or someone you've followed for years, what are the things that you're thinking about as a clinician regarding quality of life and goals of therapy? Well, you just mentioned it. Quality of life is the number one reason to initiate the therapy, really, and try to maintain patients on the therapy to control that quality of life. What does this mean? Elimination of the itching, night sweating, low grade fevers, bone aches and pain, making people have a smaller symptomatic splenomegaly so they can eat more, gain weight, performance status improves, and enjoyment of the life and contribution to society improves. This is the goal of therapy in community setting and widely known goal, and it makes all sense. We want patients to have a better quality of life. Now, what we learned through experience, and now being published by many, is that we should aim for more, not for instant gratification and saying, yes, your itching or night sweating or fever is controlled well, which with JAK inhibitors can be controlled very well within a month or two. We also want, and I tell my colleagues in the field, to refocus from the quality of life to the second, and that is how small the spleen becomes. The spleen reduces in size on the JAK inhibitors, as we talked about it. JAK inhibitors are anti proliferative and anti-inflammatory. So inflammation goes down, the quality of life improves. Proliferation goes down, the spleen is reduced, so people feel better. But it has been noted by many, and publications have been published many, to say that the smaller the spleen becomes, the longer the people live. So what we are trying to emphasize that, yes, focus on quality of life, but optimize the dose of JAK inhibitors the harder the dose, the better the spleen response. Remember, this is like a big tumor. You shrink it, right? It becomes as small as possible. It takes much longer to come back. And these patients live longer. So it has been noted even by FDA some years ago that there is a survival benefit of ruxolitinib. And now we know fedratinib and mamalotinib, possibly even pacritinib in the near future, are showing the same findings from their own studies that with the control of a signs and symptoms, and making the spleen as small as possible, you can make people live longer. So we need to think quality of life, spleen, survival benefit, maybe three years of extra life for people who are optimally treated with ruxolitinib, for example. What impact has COVID-19 had on your treatment of patients with myelofibrosis? Yeah, very good question. Of course, we are still in the COVID two years going. And first information from Europe, from Italy in particular, when the COVID happened is that patients with myeloproliferative neoplasms, regardless whether they're ETPV or myelofibrosis, have a much higher risk of dying from COVID. That has been confirmed, and it is related to what COVID does. COVID is pro-inflammatory in what it does. Inflammation in the lungs is very well known, right? pneumonia, but it comes also with a high risk of blood clotting. And many patients, uh, either by healthy patients, 
have a blood clotting problems and die from it. So you put two and two together. MPN comes with a high risk of blood clotting. ET and PV, very well known. Increased risk of blood clotting is still present in myelofibrosis as well. And you have an AN COVID infection in the same patients. That leads to higher risk of dying from COVID. And that's why we tell all our patients, get vaccinated because increase or enhance that immune system that you have by vaccines to prevent, if you get the COVID, prevent the deadly complications. So it's very important to understand that. In terms of the management, we want to optimize our care of myelofibrosis patients and others because if they do get infected, not only that risk of dying is high, it has also been noted that if the disease is not controlled well, they are prone to more complications. So let's say ET or PV patients that have a high uncontrolled blood cell count, they get the COVID, they are at high risk of complications versus those ET or PV patients that are controlled well on hydroxyurea, interferon, or ruxolitinib, have normal counts and uh, are healthy otherwise. So the disease state, not only the presence of disease, but the disease state also matters. And finally, I want to mention something else which may not be very well known. In people who are on JAK inhibitors, let's say people with MPN, mild fibrosis patients, that are on ruxolitinib, responding well, and get the COVID infection, please do not stop the therapy with the JAK inhibitor. It has been very well documented that sudden withdrawal of the JAK inhibitor in MPN patients with the raging COVID infections with markedly increased the risk of dying. Because what happens? You take away anti-inflammatory medication and inflammation goes up. People are in trouble, go to ICU with COVID and die. So optimal care before COVID, optimal care on COVID without interruptions. Thank you. Actually, very, very good and timely advice. And finally, tell us a little bit about new drug development, because I know you're, you're very involved with that and a lot of exciting things are coming. So if the JAK inhibitors are here to be used for control of the spleen and symptoms, we don't have anything to cover anemia. You may cause some anemia with JAK inhibitors. That's a problem. You may use prednisone, anabolic steroids, erythropoietin stimulating agents. Hardly ever that they work. If they work, not for too long. I mentioned earlier on Luspatercept as the anemia drug approved for some patients with myelodysplastic syndrome is being developed here as anemia drug in malfibrosis. In phase three studies, placebo controlled as additional agents on top of ruxolitinib while you are treating patients with the ruxolitinib for their problems. But other agents that are being combined with the ruxolitinib in frontline setting are BET inhibitor, pelabresib, BCL-XL inhibitor, navitoclax, and PI3 kinase inhibitor, parsaclicib. They're all being combined with the ruxolitinib to enhance the spleen and symptoms uh, control and make it durable. Remember, durability is coming along as a goal of therapy, not only just to enhance immediate control of the spleen symptoms and anemia, but make it much more durable. So these three agents are in phase three studies for that purpose in combination with the ruxolitinib. Then after ruxolitinib in second line, you have MDM2 inhibitor in phase three studies to control the spleen and symptoms. You have imetelstat, which is the telomerase inhibitor in a phase three study for possible approval in second line. And, and that one actually is very interesting. The first time ever that any study is designed in myelofibrosis with the goal to prolong life. I applaud the company behind imetelstat to uh, dare to do that because that's where we should be going. Controlling the spleen and symptoms and anemia and making people live longer. So the primary endpoint of phase three randomized study of imetelstat versus best value therapy in ruxolitinib failure is to prolong life. 
And so you see the spectrum of biological problems, which is getting more and more complicated, but even that has a positive side. Give us a chance to find abnormalities which we can target with new medications, as I mentioned, just an examples of some of phase three studies that are underway. Enhancing what we do, adding different benefits, second line, and then making people live longer. So again, today we were joined by Dr. Serge Verstovic, who is a professor of medicine and director of the Clinical Research Center for Myeloproliferative Neoplasms at MD Anderson Hospital. This was a terrific, such an interesting session. Serge, I'd like to thank you so much. Thank you, Ken. It was a real pleasure to join you today. I hope it was useful for your audience and looking forward to future opportunities. This is Dr. Ken Miller. I'd like to thank all of you for listening to this wonderful episode on myelofibrosis. For a listing of all of our healthcare professional continuing activities, podcasts, and healthcare professional resources, please visit lls.org CE. For any questions or to refer a patient, please contact our Information Resource Center, and you can reach them by calling 800 955 4572. Information specialists provide personalized one-on-one support to help patients learn about their disease, treatments, financial, and other support resources. I also want to encourage you to sign up to receive notification of future podcast episodes by subscribing at treatingbloodcancers.org. And we look forward to you joining us on future episodes. Thanks for listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We can be found on iTunes and other podcatchers. You can subscribe at www.treatingbloodcancers.org and provide your suggestions for future topics. Visit our archive section on our website for other great podcasts. Be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Keep up with LLS by following us on Twitter at LLSUSA and on Facebook at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society and access our professional continuing education activities by visiting lls.org CE. Let's keep the conversation going. Until next time.